Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Resurrection Sunday, the greatest day of the entire year. We focus this day on the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest day, really, of all human history. Yes, the birth of Christ was necessary in order to have the death and burial and resurrection, and the death was necessary to cover our sins. But the resurrection gives us hope. It, we see the power of God working in mighty ways through the fulfillment of prophecies, through the completion of the gospel, through victory over death, and also through the hope that we have for eternal life with Jesus Christ. I'm Debbie Blank with Living Word Ministries. So glad you've joined us today as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm Jackie Sailors. That greeting, He is risen, is so simple and yet so joyful. But I know it isn't always easy to be joyful, especially when we look at what's going on in the world today. Yet the disciples' world was truly fearful and full of utter despair until they realized He is risen. And they became filled with indescribable hope and joy. How much would your daily life change if you remember that He is risen indeed and everything that it means? When we were in Israel recently, we had the privilege of baptizing almost our entire group. Mothers were baptizing daughters and husbands and wives baptizing each other. It was an awesome time. And we used the verse from Romans chapter 6, verse 4 when we baptize that says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Well, that's what we have with the resurrection is newness of life. The baptism is an identification with Christ. His death is burial and his resurrection. As we focus on the resurrection, it's all about life, conquering death and looking forward to the future. And eternal life is something that we have now. As you said, it's abundant life. It's life that starts now and then goes on into eternity. Once we accept and believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and he fills us with the Holy Spirit, his spirit is in us we're in him and that life never ends that's why when it comes to our salvation there's really three aspects to it our past salvation the day that we accepted jesus christ as our lord and savior our current salvation that's living out our salvation day by day and our future salvation which is eternity with jesus christ in heaven we know those as justification sanctification and glorification if Christ had not been risen from the dead, we could not rise from the dead. We couldn't spend eternity with him, but now we can because he's the first fruits from the dead. So his death is that justification that you're talking about, that salvation from our sins, but he raised to life so that we can be assured of that same kind of resurrection. As we look at 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection passage in the scripture, we're told in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So Christ had to be resurrected first in order that you and I can be resurrected. It goes on to say in verse 23, but each one of us is resurrected in our own order. Christ, the first fruits, 
After that, those who are Christ said is coming, then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So Christ is resurrected first. We can then be resurrected at the proper time when the resurrection comes for us. I had heard that it was an old Jewish teaching around that time for those who actually believed in the resurrection. We know the Sadducees didn't. But for the others, that there was only a corporate resurrection. There wasn't some primary resurrection that would happen first. So this was a new idea to them. But Jesus came to be the first fruits of the resurrection because this assures us of our resurrection. That's why he said to Martha in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha had believed that her brother Lazarus would be resurrected at the end of time. But Jesus reminded her that he is the resurrection and the life. That's our hope. That's our plan for the future. As we look back at 1 Corinthians 15, I just love how Paul explains this whole resurrection passage because he tells us how important it is that we have the resurrection. As you say, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So he put together this, oh, what I might call a legal argument to talk about the importance of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 to 19. He goes on to argue, well, if the dead are not raised, then even Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Well, that's a really good argument where he's saying, if Christ hasn't been raised, then we're just looking at this life alone. And that's only 70 years, according to Psalm 90, verse 10. And that's not very much time in the scheme of eternity. But when we believe that Christ has been resurrected, then we can be resurrected. That gives us hope for all eternity. When uh, Paul takes that side of the argument, it certainly shows his confidence in his side of the argument, doesn't it? It certainly does. And he starts out this passage, actually, in 1 Corinthians 15, explaining to us that this resurrection is part of the gospel message. When we think of the gospel, we think of the good news of Jesus Christ. But we kind of leave it there. We don't realize that this good news is his death for the sins of mankind, but it's also his resurrection to conquer death. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to start with verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. So there he tells us that what he's talking about is the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. And then he goes on to tell us what the gospel is in verse 3. For I delivered to you of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures, and then that he appeared to Peter and to the twelve, and it goes on to say, to five hundred brethren. So the gospel message, according to Paul right here, is not just the death of Jesus Christ, it's the resurrection. We have Christ dying for the sins of mankind, paying our penalty, redeeming us from our sins. But what does that do for us if we don't have the resurrection, where we have the hope then of spending eternity with him? The gospel is the whole package. Here it is. This is of first importance. This was what was handed to him when he believed. And so for us, what it means is we're not only going to be raised from the dead, but we're going to have imperishable bodies. Those bodies will live on for eternity. 
So what do they look like? In 1 Corinthians 15, again, the resurrection passage, we're told in verse 42, so also is the resurrection from the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. So this new resurrected body never perishes. It is sown in dishonor, that's sin. It is raised in glory because we're with God. No sin can enter heaven. It is sown in weakness, clearly, because our bodies and flesh are weak. It is raised in the power of God. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And that's the body that we're going to get. Jesus, as you recall, was transfigured at the Mount of Transfiguration in what is believed to have been his resurrected body, even though it was before the time. He was also resurrected, and we saw him meet with Mary Magdalene. He met with the two men on the road to Emmaus. He also met with his apostles, and he was different. His body was different. So will ours be also. And, you know, the Bible says that when we see him, we will be like him. So when I read that part about the spiritual body, I thought, well, it's not just an ethereal kind of a gaseous state because we know that Jesus had a physical body, but it was not that earthly, perishable, mortal kind of earthly body. It was glorified. It was something different. We know that he could appear in and out of rooms and so forth. We don't know what that's going to be exactly, but we will know it will be like his. Oh, and it'll be glorious when it happens. We were also in Israel at the Garden Tomb, as well as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Both places are potentially considered to be perhaps the place where Christ was buried. And there's nobody there. There's an empty tomb because Christ isn't there. When you go to visit other dignitaries, you go to their gravesite where they are, where they were buried, where their physical body is in the ground. You don't have that with Jesus Christ because he has been raised from the dead. There is no burial site for him. There's places we commemorate his burial, but there is no burial site because he's been raised. And we, too, will be raised either at the rapture of the church or at the end of the age so that we can spend eternity with Jesus. And that whole concept of the empty tomb has never been denied. Anybody who wants to say their theory of the crucifixion, the resurrection, however that happened, if they want to discredit that, the one thing that they have never discredited is that tomb was empty. The Pharisees admitted that right from the very beginning. That's why they had to come up with some sort of a concept like the disciples stole the body or something. But the tomb is empty, and that has not been denied. Now, there are some religions that don't believe that, but that's up to them. We do, and why do we? Because the Bible says it happened. We are given the gospel account in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he did after he was resurrection, as well as in the book of Acts with his ascension into heaven. Body and soul, not as a dead person, but as a body, soul, alive in his spiritual body. So we know the Bible is true because God says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. It's God breathed. So we take the Bible at its word. Plus, as you say, historical evidence proves that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. So really, there's no good argument that he wasn't. That's why we stand on that in truth. But we also stand on it in hope because that hope is our future. And when I say the hope is our future, I think of Job. Even Job said in chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. 
So even Job knew at the very beginning that he had a hope of seeing his Redeemer when he died. In Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah says the same thing. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You will lie on the dust and you will awake and shout for joy. So even the Old Testament people, before we see the finality of it in the New Testament, even the Old Testament heroes had hope. Those are two of the most stunning verses, and they're both Old Testament verses, which describe that when Job says, and I think Job is one of the most ancient texts, so at the very beginning of God's revelation to the ancient fathers, Job knew that his Redeemer lived, and he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, so that was current, that was also future, and he had faith, even in the midst of the distress that he was going through, that he would see his um, Redeemer in the flesh, he would be able to have that glorified body that we're talking about. Now, Jesus' disciples didn't quite understand that. Jesus told them several times that he was going to go up to Jerusalem, he was going to be killed, and he would rise again on the third day. And that kind of went in and out of their heads. They didn't understand it until it actually happened. And then they remembered the words that Jesus had given them, and then they believed. So sometimes people believe from the Old Testament. Sometimes we have apostles that weren't quite sure what was going to happen because they were looking for a reigning Messiah, not one who was going to die. But they did recognize it after Jesus was made alive. And he was made alive, we're told, in Philippians 3. One of these great passages in Scripture in verses 10 and 11, when Paul says that his goal is that I may know him, Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection. Just think of that, the power of his resurrection. Who can raise somebody from the dead? I can't. You can't. I mean, maybe God gives power to some people to do. He certainly did in the New Testament. But that's only by the power of God, because God is the giver of life and taker of life. And God has chosen to raise us from the dead, that impossible thing that only God can do. And Paul wanted to know that power, the power of God that raises people from the dead, not so that he could go out and perform magic, but so that he could use it for the glory of God. He also went on to say, not that only that he may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He wanted to know everything about Jesus so that he could be part of Christ's life, part of his suffering, and part of the resurrection. And how do we attain that resurrection from the dead? It is to know him to know him, to believe in him. It's not anything that we can do. It's not anything that's going to gain anything further from God than what Jesus Christ himself did. So all we have to do is relax and know him. To abide in him is such a freeing thing, to know that we don't have to busily try to come up with something else. He's done it all for us. But that's too easy. We need something else. We need to work for our salvation. We need to do something for our salvation. We need points, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, to follow so that we can be saved and have a relationship with Jesus. We need to follow our religions. No, we don't. Salvation is very simple. It's simply faith in Jesus Christ. That's all it is. Now, faith is a little more complicated in that it's not just a mental assent to who Jesus Christ is. That's not really faith. That's just a belief system. That's a head knowledge. True faith in the original language, the word for faith and belief in the Greek is pistis or pisteo if it's a verb. And what it means is a three-pronged stool. 
And that is that we must recognize who Jesus is, that he is God, that he came to earth and he died for our sins because we are all sinners and we cannot attain to heaven unless someone justifies us from our sin, redeems us from our sin. That's what Jesus did as God, as the perfect God, perfect man who died for our sins. And then once we realize that, we need to recognize him as Lord and Savior of our lives. Put him in charge of our lives. Afterwards, we don't need to set out to do good things because we now have the Holy Spirit who indwells in us. He guides us into all righteousness. He teaches us. He draws us to God. He convicts us of our sins. And we automatically want to do things of God. We automatically want to get to know God better. So faith is very simple. But what it takes is a conviction of who Jesus is, a surrender to that conviction, making him master of our lives, not us, putting him on the throne of our lives, and finally a conduct that's becoming that new relationship we have of Jesus. That's what faith is, but it's still very simple. Some of that faith and that conviction comes through evidence that God gives us in Scripture because he did foretell a lot of this and he gave clues to what was going to be happening in the Scripture, in the Psalms, and in Isaiah, so that this resurrection was predicted. In Isaiah 53.10, there's a prophecy in there of Christ's resurrection. It says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render him as a guilt offering, he will see his offering. He will prolong his days. That means he's going to have days after the offering. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We know that Isaiah 53 is a great passage about the suffering Messiah. But also we see that resurrection. In Acts chapter 13, we see Paul preaching of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he does, he quotes Old Testament Psalms that foretold the resurrection of Christ. For example, he quoted Psalm 2-7 when he said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He also quoted Psalm 16.10 when he said, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Those are prophecies that Christ would be resurrected. So the Old Testament prophets said that the people, the religious leaders should have known, should have expected it, but they didn't. They weren't looking for that suffering Messiah. They were looking for a conquering Messiah. And what builds the faith in God in this instance is you look at this and you see this panorama of Scripture where he predicted what was going to happen. God knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. So this is someone we can trust. We know that he is sovereign, that he is in control. We can trust him. We can trust his character. We can trust his promises. Mm, I'm so glad we can. Debbie, we also know that the resurrection indicates God's victory over death, his conquest over death. We're pretty familiar with the sting of death right now in our world. I went to a funeral visitation just the other day for a woman who lived to be 100 years old. She was well-loved. She lived a good life. She died a natural death. And yet, you know, the sting of that death was still there. There were still tears. And so what joy it is when we say he is risen to know that he has overcome that sting of death. Oh, yes, Jackie. At my dad's funeral, I read this passage about the sting of death from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 51. It's often read at funerals because we need that hope to know that death does not keep us. 
So let me read that passage. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, I believe that's a reference to the rapture of the church, but it also talks about how the dead will be raised imperishable, and that's our hope of resurrection, and we shall all be changed. Then it goes on in verse 53 to say, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And that comes from Isaiah 25, 8. Once we have salvation in Jesus Christ, we have the hope of death being swallowed up in victory. A death just isn't swallowed up by death. It's swallowed up in victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then verse 55 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Well, that makes sense because sin brought death into the world. We didn't have death until sin came in Genesis chapter 3. So the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Well, the law is given to us, according to Galatians 3, to show us what sin is. So it makes sense when it says that the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory over death. It's not because of our power. It's because of the power of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we now have that power of God in our lives by belief in Jesus Christ to conquer death. I mean, that's the only thing that people want to get rid of in life except taxes is death. (laughs) And we have conquered that through Jesus Christ. That's why 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. When we have believed in Jesus Christ and we have become conquerors over death through his power, then everything we do should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's where our heart should be. If it's not, we have to ask ourselves if we've truly surrendered to Jesus Christ or if we're just maybe having this religious faith or experience that isn't truly from our heartfelt conviction and surrender to Jesus Christ. But when we have that, we have the ultimate hope of eternity with Jesus and the ultimate hope of victory over death. I wonder if our listeners have thought about the fact, though, everybody is going to be resurrected, but not everybody will be resurrected to be with Jesus. Everyone will spend eternity alive. It's just a matter of where we will spend it. We've talked about what it takes for us to be resurrected and have eternal life with Jesus Christ. But what about those who won't? In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. That's us. And good deeds doesn't mean that's what gets us to heaven, but those are an aftermath of our relationship with Christ. But those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So there is judgment that awaits those people who have not committed their lives to follow Jesus Christ. That means eternity away from God, eternity in hell, eternity where the worm never dies and the thirst is never quenched. It's a place of torment, a place of fire, a place of brimstone, and most importantly, a place away from God. 
So we have as believers a judgment where we are rewarded. We are going to be eternally with the one who loved us enough to die for us and give us life for us and to be raised for that eternal life that we're going to have. That's a wonderful joy. He is risen. That's wonderful for us. But for those who do not believe, who do not know him, there's a great deal of concern. And it tells us that also in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. In verse 8, it says, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we've just explained what the gospel is, that belief in Jesus Christ. But those people who haven't believed, and that belief isn't just that head knowledge, it's the surrendering, making him Lord of our lives. It goes on to say in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, we can't even imagine what that's like, because even in this evil world that we live in, because right now the world is under the power of the evil one, God is still everywhere. That won't be the case in hell, in eternal destruction. It will be torment and awful every single moment, 24-7, 365, for all eternity. And some people I know will say, well, God's a God of love. He wouldn't do that. Well, God's also a God of justice and gives everybody the same opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ. If we choose not to on this earth, then why would we want to spend eternity with him in heaven? He's a God of justice who will not allow sin and those people who have not accepted his Redeemer, Jesus Christ, not accept them into heaven. In that Second Thessalonians passage, it did jump out at me that it says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. So it is justice as much as anything else that we have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ out of grace and out of mercy. But if you don't accept that, there's nothing left but that justice. And you stand on your own without Jesus. That's why God says in Daniel 12, 1 and 2, And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Those are people who believed in the Messiah. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There are two sides to this resurrection story. You've got the good and the bad. You've got eternity with Jesus, eternity away from Jesus. You've got those who believed and have surrendered to Christ. You've got those who haven't believed. You've got really good people on the side who haven't believed. They've gone to church. They've followed their religion. They've done everything right in this world, but they've never surrendered to following Jesus Christ. But if we do, if we will surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we have the hope of the resurrection. And that hope is outlined in 1 Peter chapter 1, which says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. That's that spiritual birth. We were born the first time physically, but we're born again spiritually when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. It's not by baptism as an infant. It's not by confirmation in your religion. It's by surrendering to Jesus Christ. So we're born again to a living hope, not a dead one, but a living one through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. Remember those imperishable bodies? Well, this is an imperishable inheritance. And it's undefiled. And it won't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us who are protected by the power of God through faith. That's pistis, that three-pronged faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. 
That's that final salvation. We had the salvation, the one-time experience of believing in Jesus. We had the salvation of living our lives for Jesus. And our future salvation is glorification with Jesus Christ in heaven. If we have believed, if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus, today's a great day for you to do that. For you to turn your heart and your life over to Jesus. There's no magic prayer. It's a true surrender of your heart by just saying, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner and I can't spend eternity with you without committing my life to Jesus Christ. God, who died for my sins and rose from the dead. And I surrender to him, making him master of my life. Father, I trust in you to give me your Holy Spirit and eternal life with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.